Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're starting the uh, Christmas series today, and we're calling it, Are You Ready for Christmas? And we're really just going to focus in on one uh, idea or value, but it's a big value. It's a Christian value. It's, it's really the, at the core of everything Jesus anyway, but especially so at Christmas time. I want to start this morning by just making this statement or, or offering this simplistic thought, and it is, I don't know why everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. Maybe not the version that you grew up with, maybe not the Americanized Christian aversion, uh, Christianized Christianity that we, we have come to see so prevalent in, in our country these days. I, I, I call it Americanized Christianity. It's just you know, it's this thing where we're all supposed to look alike, talk alike, act alike, you know, think alike, use the same words. I, 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 I try really hard up here to not use big um, preacher words and, and, and religious terminology that turns people off because, quite honestly, people have had a belly full of that. Um, I'm talking, of, you know, that version, maybe that's not all that attractive, but I'm talking about the, the irresistible irresistible. Jesus version, the early church version, the first century version. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't and everybody wouldn't want that version of Christianity to be true because there is a big difference between I don't believe it's true. You know, there are certain people that don't believe it's true. You might be one of them here today. We, have, we often entertain people at Cross Lane who don't necessarily believe what I'm up here saying, but they still come. And I love it that they come, and we need to make space for them. But uh, sometimes people just need a little more information. Sometimes they just need to hear the story a different way. Sometimes they need some evidence. Sometimes they need a couple of questions answered. Maybe, maybe you know, they need to hear it just the right way from the right person. So I get that, but there's a difference between I don't believe it's true and I don't want it to be true. And I just don't understand when people are confronted with the original version of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and the life of Jesus why they wouldn't at least want it to be true. I mean, I would think everybody would want it to be true. You may never get to the place where you scale the top of the mountain intellectually and say, I'm there, I believe uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. You, you may never get to that place. Some people don't. But when you hear about the life of Jesus explained, or you put yourself in the middle of the first century context and you think about what happened, I just don't understand why everybody wouldn't want it to be true. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century uh, philosopher and mathematician, and Blaise Pascal said this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. In other words, when we find something attractive to us, we go looking for reasons to substantiate our belief. That's kind of what we do. Now, he's not saying if something is attractive, then it's true. And that's not what I'm here to say today. I'm not saying that because Christianity, early first century Christianity, was attractive, that it is necessarily true. Um, here's my point. Christianity in its original form was so extraordinarily attractive that I just don't understand why people in modern times wouldn't at least want it to be true. Even if intellectually they can't get there. Because Jesus was attractive, and people were attracted to Jesus. Early Christianity was attractive, so attractive that it would eventually become the mainline philosophy and the main worldview of the Roman Empire. Now, not in the beginning. In the first century, it wasn't that way. If you had told them in the first century, eventually this is going to become the worldview of the Roman Empire, 
they would have said, you're crazy. But by the third and fourth centuries, Christianity as a worldview has been widely adopted. Christianity, and I've said this up here before, Christianity has shaped Western civilization. And the, the, the thing that makes Christianity so attractive, at least the original version of it, is one single word, and that's where we're going in this series for the next several weeks. It, it's a word that, that we want to be true. But it may be a word that wasn't necessarily in the equation for you as you grew up, and that word is the word grace. Grace. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. It's what I wanted when I'm standing there in the middle of a plate on the ground and mom looking at me. I want grace. Mom, please don't be mad. Please give me a second chance. Please don't banish me to my room for life. You know, you come home late and your parents have found your whatever it is that they don't want you to have, right? And they've got it laid out on the table and they've, you're, you're busted. There's no getting away from it. Um, I wasn't going to, I didn't, I haven't told this story online. I didn't tell this story in the first service, but I just, I have to tell you this story just because it's funny. Okay. It's just funny. It fits with what I'm talking about, but it's just a funny story. My, I have a, I have a nephew named Austin and, and Austin is a, he's a, he's not very tall, but he's just a good looking kid. He's strong. He's, he's vibrant. You know, he's just this great kid. Um, but he's, he's a bit of a rascal. If you probably truth be known, he's a little bit of a rascal. And my, my sister and her husband, uh, he was kind of a surprise baby. So all their other kids are grown and gone. But Austin kind of came late, and so he's the baby. And um, so one night, he was out somewhere, and um, they found a, a marijuana stash that, that uh, Austin had. He, had. he had a little baggie with some stuff in it. And he's, he's, that makes him sound like a horrible kid. He's not a horrible kid. He's a really good kid, but... Um, kids do stupid things. And so they found it and they were waiting on him when he came home. And they, they had it laid out on the bed, right? And so they said, Austin, would you come up here to the, the you know, back room? And, and uh, so he walks in and they laid it out. And my sister didn't say a whole lot. She just kind of pointed to it. And she basically said, Austin, what is this? <laughs> and his response is so funny to me. He stood there for a minute. He didn't say anything. And he said, Mom, that's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> right? Like, there's just nowhere to go. There's no, there's no place to hide. You're busted. You're busted. We got you. And uh, uh, I think Austin has moved on and is in a different place now. Um, but, uh, and I don't think he'd have any problem with me sharing that story. But, you know, we've all been to that place. We've all been, you know, you walk in, your parents have found something, and oh my goodness, where can I hide? You walk in, and your wife has stayed up late because she knows something. You walk in, and your husband has stayed up late because there's a conversation that's going to happen. You walk into work, and, and you know, you've done something you shouldn't have done, and they've got the evidence laid out there, and it's bad, and, and, and you know, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? He's, they've got me. What, what do you do? You want someone to give you what you don't deserve in that moment. At the same time, and maybe why there's so much tension, grace is what we are hesitant to extend to other people. Right? Like we, it, it's maybe even more so it's difficult to extend to people who've hurt us or it's really hard to extend grace to people who have hurt someone that we love. 
It's just hard for us to do, and, and therein lies the tension. Grace, when we are on the receiving end, is extraordinarily refreshing, but when we are on the end that expects us to give grace to somebody else, that is very, very disturbing for us. We don't like that. Now, if you grew up in a church, uh, you may have a working definition of grace. I'm going to give us one this morning just for our time in the next couple of weeks. Um, you might know what grace is, but never really had to think of it in terms of a definition but for the next few weeks, here's our definition. Grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. Undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. It is someone leaning in your direction instead of leaning away from you when you've messed up. It's if you've offended somebody, it's them coming to you to fix the situation when you know you probably should have been the one going to them to fix it. Right? If you've ever offended somebody and you thought, man, I really need to apologize and make that right, and they come to you and they make it right, and they're gracious, and they, you know, they're kind, and they, they're forgiving, and they're understanding, and you're like, boy, I don't even deserve that. That's grace. But grace is strange. You can no more earn grace than you can plan your own surprise birthday party. Right? You can't do that. You can't surprise yourself. The fact that you planned it takes away the surprise part. And that's kind of what grace is. The moment you think you deserve grace, you have voided grace. If you think you've earned it, you have, you, it's not grace. It's, it's something else. You can ask for grace. You can beg for grace, but you can't earn grace. And then here's the additional twist to this whole conversation. We can't recognize or receive grace for what it is until we're convinced we don't deserve it. It can only be experienced in the context of relationship. In order for you to experience grace, you're going to experience grace in some form of a relationship. Grace is purely relational, and it can only be experienced inside relationship, and this is what makes Christianity so unique. See, in every other world religion, it's about what you do. God, God, God is going to help you, or God is going to save you if you do the right things. Christianity is completely different than that. You know, in, in, uh, in uh, the Muslim faith, it's you bow to Mecca three times a day. There are certain rituals you go through. Uh, the Jews have certain things that they, they do, that you know, commands that they recognize, and they think that's what gets them close to God. I define religion as doing the same thing over and over, trying to get God to like you. And what I want people to understand is God already likes you. Even if you don't ever do anything good for him, he likes you. He loves you. But the difference between Christianity and every other world religion are two letters, N and E. Because <clears throat> in every other world religion, it's what you do, but in Christianity, it's what's been done for you on the cross. We just celebrated that in, in the Eucharist. And so that's what makes Christianity unique. Grace sets it apart, sets Christianity apart from every other religion or philosophy, and it makes it so attractive at its core. And this is why even if you never get to the place where intellectually you can believe that Christianity is true, this is why I just think that you should want it to be true, and it's why God had to show up. It's why God had to show up. Because grace is 100% relational, and you can't experience or understand grace apart from a relationship. This is why God had to show up. This is why we celebrate the way we do. This is why Christmas is such a big deal to Christians. We would have never known the grace of God without the presence of God. For God's grace to be seen and known, there had to be a person. It had to be personal, and it comes 
And that is the message of Christmas. It comes in Jesus. The gospel writer of John, he wrote John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was a disciple of Jesus. He saw it all. He lives to be an old man. He probably outlived all of his contemporaries, right? Like he's the only one of the disciples. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. He's the only one of them that wasn't martyred. He is, he's going to be exiled to an island called Patmos. But all the other disciples get killed. Um, a lot of his friends get killed because of the faith. There's a lot of martyrdom, a lot of violence in the early days of the church. And he basically outlives everybody. And um, John, with hindsight, basically comes to the realization somehow, I need to get this story out before I die. I think it's not out of the question that some people that were close to John that knew that he'd been with Jesus, that, you know, can you imagine in that time if you, if you knew John and you knew he'd been with Jesus, wouldn't you want to talk to him all the time to hear stories? And John, tell us that story again about when, when Jesus died on the cross. Tell us that story again. I mean, and I think that some of those people probably got to John and said, John, you need to write this down. We can't let you die without this. This, this needs to be historical. People need to know these stories. And so John somehow comes to the conclusion that he's going to write this down. And, and you just imagine as John gets ready to start this story that he thinks to himself and he's thinking, how do I, how do I start a story that is so epic and so big and has so many things in it that are going to be so hard for these people to believe? How do I tell this story and make it, you know, this story sounds fantastic. It almost sounds beyond believable. How do I help people to believe? So John begins in this way, and he gets right to the heart of what Christmas is all about, and he gets right to the heart of what grace is about. John chapter 1, verse 14. These are very familiar words. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God came to earth. God inhabited a body. I know it's hard to believe. I know this is out of the box. I know you're not going to believe me as I tell you this story, but God came down in a baby. God became flesh. John is saying, this isn't something I heard about. This isn't something I read. I was there. We were there. Peter was there. Andrew was there. Disciples were there. Dozens, if not hundreds of people were there and watched on the cross as he we saw it. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. We saw the glory of God. Verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. John would say, look, I know it's hard to believe, but the best way I know how to say this is God is our Father. Jesus is his unique Son who came to earth to represent the presence of God and to explain it to us about what God is really like. And then here's the line that John will hammer for the rest of his gospel. Who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Not the balance of grace and truth. Not some kind of scale system, not a ledger type thing. Anytime you try to balance grace and truth, you lose some of the grace or you lose some of the truth. It's hard to bring both. But Jesus was full on grace and full on truth. He brought a full dose of both grace and truth. What happens is we find ourselves on one side of the ledger or the other. Some of you are truth people. Some of you are grace people. Some of you were raised in grace churches like me. I was raised on the preaching of L.D. Campbell, a great grace preacher, and I'm thankful for it. And L.D. drilled into us every week, you are saved by grace. Now, he taught us truth too. I don't want to make it sound like he didn't. But I grew up knowing I was forgiven. 
what happens is some people are, are raised up in a truth church, and there's nothing wrong with, with a truth church. But what I'm trying to convey is when you focus too much on one, you do it at the exclusion of the other, and you don't necessarily have a good, healthy, um, what we would refer to as a balance of both, because that's what we do as, as humans. We balance both of those. But Jesus shows up, and it's different with him. There's not a balance. It's not, it, Jesus doesn't lose one when he offers the other. It's full-on grace and truth when it comes to Jesus. Jesus never watered down the truth, and he never turned down the grace. He called sin, sin. He called sinners, sinners. And then he died for all of them and paid for their sins. Jesus was all grace. He was all truth all the time. This is what led John to pen these words that would change civil, Western civilization. And it would shape the way just about everybody views God. And this wasn't a new concept, and, or it was a new concept, but it, and it hadn't really been really put out there by anybody you got to understand the roman the roman greek and roman culture roman empire was all about greatness how great can you be how much can you overpower somebody else a guy like nietzsche would have been great in roman culture it was nietzsche who said i, I you know i cannot tolerate that there is a god it would be too much not to be one nietzsche's the one who said you know i will to power well, he would have been great in Roman culture because that's what they were all about. They were all about willing to power. I want to be greater than you. I want to overpower you. I want to be stronger than you. I want to get everything that's coming to me. It's all mine. It was a selfish culture. Then you have Jesus comes along, and in the first century, the world's kind of crazy. It's kind of upside down. And John's friends have all been martyred now. It's just John. And he says, something completely different he says you know up until now when they thought about god they thought god you know he's powerful and he's mighty and he's angry some of you you know have come in here hopefully your your mind has been changed but people one of the things they think when they think about god is god's angry at me god's out to get me god doesn't love me no god's god loves you and that's john's message throughout everything that he writes god is love revolutionary message to these early christians and the reason that John could conclude that God is love and that Jesus is love in a body is that Jesus was full-on truth and full-on grace. And, and some of you were raised by really good parents who understood a good balance of grace and truth, right? Like you got both of those. You got grace when you needed it. You got truth when you needed it. I think my mother got that pretty right. Um, there were times when I really deserved it and she didn't give it to me. There were other times I deserved it and I got the truth. Trust me. All of the truth. Love is all grace, all truth, all the time. John was there that awkward afternoon when Jesus and the disciples were walking up the southern steps of the, of the Temple Mount. And, you know, this is precious ground that they are ascending to, the, the Temple Mount. You know, they, um, wait a minute, am I, I'm ahead of myself. Yeah, I got another story to tell you before I do that. John, Jesus and his disciples are coming down the street and they come to an intersection and at this intersection there's a, a, a tax collector and he has his tax booth set up and so you know it's not it's not out of the question to think that they um, did some business with this tax collector his name was Matthew he's also known as Levi and after they conducted their business Jesus looks at this tax collector and he says Matthew I want you to follow me 
And the disciples are with Jesus in this crowd that's following along, some of them at a distance, some of them a little closer than that. And they're thinking to themselves, no, 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 Jesus, he's a tax collector. We don't hang out with tax collectors. We don't ask tax collectors to follow us. Look, their, their family doesn't even invite these people over for dinner, okay? These are the worst of the worst. Now, here's why. Tax collectors were basically Jews who'd been recruited by Romans to tax the Jews, and basically what they were told was, you get the money that Rome wants, and anything extra that you can get out of them, that's yours. Does that sound like a good system to you? Does that sound like a system fraught with all kinds of possibilities to, to you know, take money from people. And that's what, the, that's what these tax collectors would do. They would overcharge. They would get extra money for themselves. They got rich doing this. And, the, 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 you know, they were looked at as traitors because they did this to their own people. So nobody liked a tax collector. And now you're going to invite one to dinner? Come on, Jesus. You can't be serious. You're not going you're, you're, you're to ask him to follow us. And he's like, no, Matthew, follow me. And, and there's no real commitment from Matthew. I think probably what happened is he probably, he probably wasn't there by himself. He probably had a committee or another, like an assistant or something. He turns it over to him and says, hey, I'm going I'm to go with this guy for a little bit. I, you know, you, you man the shop. And so um, he just begins to go where Jesus goes. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, this is not good. We have built, we have spent our whole time with Jesus trying to build up this reputation, trying to, trying to make a name, trying to do this the right way. This is going to hurt our base. We are going to lose followers over this. Matthew says, I'll follow you. Where are we going? And Jesus says something that offends everybody that hears it. Jesus says, Matthew, we're going to go to your house. And Peter says, oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to his house. And Jesus is like, oh, yes, we are. We're going, to Pete, we're going to Matthew's house. But Jesus, he's a tax collector. I mean, he's a bad dude. I mean, he's so bad that when they refer to sinners, they take tax collectors out of it and they give them their own category. There's sinners and then there's tax collectors. Jesus, that's what he is. We can't go, and we're going to his house? And Jesus says, yeah. This is an incredibly awkward moment. They're all going to go to Matthew's house. Matthew invites some of his tax-gathering friends to come along. And I just suspect Matthew says something like this. Look, I'm going to invite my friends. They don't like you. You're not going to like them. They don't think like you. You don't think like them. But this is, these are my homeboys. This is who I hang out with, and they're coming with me. So imagine the scene. They... <laughs> The disciples of Jesus come walking into Matthew's house, and they sit down. Can you just imagine Peter, rule keeper Peter, that, you know, he wants to do, he wants to honor God, he loves God, he doesn't want to do anything wrong. Can you just imagine how ticked off he is? Arms crossed, like, I can't believe we're here. I can't, can't believe I'm in the house of a tax collector. Andrew's sitting next to him, got a big scowl on his face. None of the disciples are happy. It would be kind of like being at a social setting, like you're out, with let's say a couple we have, I know we have families that are friends and you go to dinner together and and you're at dinner and you're having a nice steak dinner and you have some wine with your dinner and let's just say for the sake of this little discussion that you've been overserved you've had one maybe one too many and all of a sudden I show up at the restaurant and I walk up to your table to say hello it gets kind of awkward doesn't it like, you know, where, where can I go? I can't go anywhere. He's right there. Now, see, here's, here's why this is bad. Because you like me on Sunday morning, but not so much on Saturday night. 
right? Like, don't cramp my style, Brett. Just get out of my face and leave me alone. I'll come see you in the morning. But I don't want you here tonight. It's just kind of awkward. It's kind of a downer, like, like Brett, go away. <laughs> how long? You look at somebody like, how long is he going to stay here? See, here's Jesus the rabbi, here's Matthew the tax collector, and the whole thing is just awkward and unsettling because that is the nature of grace. It's awkward. It says when the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are the clean ones, the Pharisees are the ones that are ceremonially, they do it all right. They're religious, they're, they're all their ducks in a row. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, what they're saying is, if he's a rabbi, he should be out here sitting with us. He shouldn't be in that house eating with that guy. If he was really who he says he is, he would come out here and eat with us. Because the Pharisees would not be caught dead in Matthew's house. They would not be caught dead in there. That's the last place they're going to go. Because they think if they walk in there, they literally think they're going to get sin cooties. Remember when you're in a second grade and you walk, oh, cooties. That's kind of what they thought. Like, we can't go in his house. It'll make us ceremonially unclean. So I think what happens is they probably recruited somebody, a messenger of some type, to go in and deliver this message. And this, this person goes into the house and basically delivers a message that says, the leaders from the temple, the religious leaders, want to know, why is your rabbi eating with this rabble? Jesus, why are you eating with this guy? He's horrible. He's a tax collector. Nobody hangs out with him. Why are you doing this? And I'm sure upon hearing this, Jesus said just as loudly, don't call Matthew and his friends sinners. That may hurt their feelings. And they may raise your taxes. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he, you're like, I didn't know that. That's not in my Bible. No, Jesus makes an awkward situation even more awkward. He does this grace and truth thing that he so often did. He, he's at Matthew's house. He's invited Matthew to follow him, and he says loud enough for everybody in the room to hear it, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it is the sick. And I think it would be not out of the question for Matthew to pipe up and say, wait a minute, Jesus, I'm right here, okay? I hear what you just said. Are you talking about me? Are you call Jesus, are you calling me sick? To which Jesus would say, yes, Matthew, you're sick. You, you charge your own people more than you should, and you're making a great living on the backs of poor people, people who are your kin, people who are your, your tribesmen. And, and yes, Matthew, you've got some problems. You, you know, you're not even in the category of sinner. They have a special category just for you. Yes, Matthew, you're sick. You guys are the worst of the worst. Thanks for having me for dinner. Come follow me. See, this messes up all the categories. If you want somebody to follow you, more than likely they're going to have the same opinions and the same philosophies that you do, right? Or if you think if someone's going to follow you, they're going to adopt your philosophies and adopt your opinions. Jesus, you've asked somebody who's nothing like you to follow you. This destroys all the categories. And then Jesus said, hey, go outside and tell these Pharisees. <laughs> And listen to what he says to him. You think Jesus isn't a sniper? This is a sniper move by Jesus. This first, the, the first words out of his mouth. He says, but go and learn what this means. Now, the Pharisees are the smartest people in the city, okay? They're the most learned, most educated people in the city. When you tell educated people, go learn something, 
you're insulting them. So this statement that Jesus makes is kind of a dig, okay? It's like it's, it's a little sniper shot. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now he's quoting the Old Testament. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And you just wonder if when he said sinners, if he didn't kind of sweep his hand around the room that he's standing in, as if to say, I'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner, and I'm not afraid to go to their house for dinner. That's just who Jesus was. He was both. He was grace and he was truth. There's another time. They're ascending the, the Temple Mount. And this is holy ground. This is a special place. You know, you get up in the top and there's a holy of holies. There's an altar. They're sacrificing animals. This is holy ground. This, is, this piece of real estate, it's hard for Westerners to understand how precious this place is to the Jews. And Jesus is up there and he was teaching and he's seated, you know, the rabbi always sat when he taught, so he sat down, he started to teach, and the, the religious leaders, probably with a temple guard, because the religious leaders would have never touched this woman, at least not publicly, they, they, would, they bring this woman caught in adultery. She's completely naked. And they bring her, and they basically cast her down at the feet of Jesus. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And apparently they, they had had her for a while. I don't think they just discovered her. I think they'd had her and kept her put away for a while. And they were waiting for the opportune, the perfect moment to catch Jesus off guard. To catch Jesus in a situation where he would, he would be confronted with this and, and we're going to get him. We're going to get him to say something that's going to get him in trouble. And the, the scriptures say that they stood her up in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. You wonder where the guy was. Where's he? Why isn't he drugged naked in front of Jesus? This woman was caught in adultery, and, and this is what the law says. And, and by the way, the Holy of Holies is right over there, Jesus. The law says that she must die. She must be executed. We should stone her. And Jesus is so cool here. Jesus says this, and it's brilliant. He says, okay, you're the experts in the law. Stone her. Go ahead. He calls their bluff. He calls their bluff because he knows that they're right there in the presence of the Holy of Holies. They know, he knows they're not going to do anything to her when they're, this, when they're on this precious ground. And so now you can imagine how terrified she is, right? She's, she's in front of all these people. She has not a stitch of clothing on. She's been caught. She's busted. She's got to be terrified. And then Jesus speaks again. Stoner. Go ahead. But the one that throws the first rock needs to be somebody who is, is without sin. So whoever that is among you, you go ahead and you fire away. And one by one, starting with the oldest, moving to the, the, the youngest, rocks start hitting the ground. As men start to come to the realization that none of them are in a position to be able to pass judgment on this woman, and Jesus has gotten us again. Daggone it, we thought we had him this time. And one by one, the older guys put, the younger, put their arms around the younger guys, and they're like, come on, let's go. He got us again. Man, he's smart. And then Jesus ruins the moment. He's the victor. He just won. There they go. They've been vanquished. They've got to walk away. He beat the Pharisees. But then Jesus looks at this woman. He leans into her, and he says, Leave your life of sin. Jesus, 
Couldn't you have just said something like, listen, I know that life's been tough for you. I know your upbringing wasn't good. Maybe you don't even have a dad. And maybe that's why you do some of the things that you're doing. I know that. I understand. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, look, leave your life of sin. You are guilty, but I do not condemn you. You're guilty. Leave your life of sin, but I do not condemn you. To which I think she's confused. You know, she's, she's, she knows that she's wrong. She knows she's done something she shouldn't have done. You should get punished. She's, she's trying to figure out why she's not in front of the firing squad, why they're not throwing rocks there. Like, I, Jesus, I deserve it. I should, you know, and you're, you just said I'm guilty, but you don't condemn me. Jesus, that doesn't even make sense. You condemn guilty people, innocent people go free. But yet you're telling me I can go free even though I'm guilty. It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus basically say, no, look, it used to be that way, but in this moment, it's going to be different. See, you and I benefit from the fact that grace has touched down on earth. There is a new lawgiver. There is a new covenant maker. There is a new representative of God the Father. He was all grace, all the truth, all the time. That is why even if you never get to the place where you fully believe that Jesus is Lord, I don't understand why you wouldn't at least want this to be true. Over and over and over again, Jesus leaned in toward pre-repentant people, people who weren't asking for forgiveness, people who weren't acknowledging their sin. Jesus leaned into those kinds of people and he invited them to follow him. Over and over, he leaned into people who had not acknowledged their sin, and he initiated a relationship with those people. And he basically said, follow me. Just follow me. And then John, at the very end, when Jesus is crucified, John is there. And he sees his Lord crucified, and there's this point when Jesus is on the cross and he looks down off the cross and he looks at John and he says, John, my mother is now your mother. What he's saying is, I want you to take mom and I want you to take care of her. I'm not going to be here to take care of her. You need to take care of my mother. Treat her as your own. And things got pretty tough in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in Judea. And things got pretty tough. So tradition tells us that John and the mother of Jesus, Mary, made their way to Ephesus. I'm told that if you were to go to Ephesus today, which is in Turkey, if you were to go there today, they would show you, guides will take you to a place and say, this is where John took care of, of Mother Mary. So we know that John was there when Jesus died, and, and, and while he was there, John witnessed the ultimate expression of God's grace. This is a crazy moment of grace. This was the moment that amazing got put into grace. Here's what John saw. This is what scripture says. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be, with him to be executed. So first century religious leaders said, look, grace and truth in a body, can't have that. We're going to crucify that. It's too uncomfortable. It's too weird. It's too awkward. Verse, 20, verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And then we encounter those, these, these phrases that you, when you read the New Testament, you're tempted to just read right by this and not even recognize this. But this is a horrifying, disgusting thing that happens, and yet it's for you and me. 
This is what reminds us that this isn't fantasy. This is what reminds us that this isn't some, (coughs) excuse me, This isn't some story. This isn't a Disney film. This isn't once upon a time in a village far, far away. This is what John saw. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. See, they understood that this is either what he claimed of himself or what his followers had claimed for him. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. This guy's mad, he's angry, and he's going to take that anger all the way to the grave. He's going he to curse until he hits the ground. But in verse 40, <clears throat> but the other criminal rebuked him. Now I want you to understand that the conversation we're about to hear isn't a, an easy conversation. <clears throat> and I don't mean it's, it's not easy because of the content. Physically, this is not an easy conversation <clears throat> to have. Because when you die on a cross, what happens is it's a slow death. You die by asphyxiation. You simply cannot breathe. What happens is your body sags, and as your body sags, it closes in on your, your lungs. You just simply cannot get air into your lungs. And so in order to talk, in order to breathe, You have to push yourself up just to get a breath, just a shallow breath, just enough to keep you alive. And then you hold that as long as you can, and then you let it out, and your body sinks back down. And so this conversation, in order for you to talk, you have to breathe. And so they're pushing up. They're trying to get enough breath just to breathe. And then on top of that, they're trying to talk. It's really uncomfortable. It's really hard. And these guys are hanging on crosses, and they're trying to speak. And and you just, you, you know, it's terribly painful. Terribly painful. And he says, look, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, and he's just trying to get a breath. We are punished justly for getting, and, and are, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, if the kingdom of heaven is reserved for good people, look, criminal number one, you and I both know we're not going there. Like, that's not for us. The thief's acknowledgement here is we have no hope. We are getting what we deserve. And he, his only hope now, this, this criminal that's talking to Jesus, that's about to talk to Jesus, his only hope is to get something that he deserves the least. Something that he had likely experienced very little of in his life. So in an act of desperation, he says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, Jesus, there is no doubt that you are a king and that you have a kingdom. There is no doubt in my mind that where you're going is someplace I am probably not going to get to go. And I'm just asking you one thing, Jesus, would you remember me? Can I go where you're going? Now the people who are looking on, they could hear this conversation. And as they hear this conversation, they have to be incredulous. They have to be saying things like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. <laughs> you hear him? He's repenting from the cross. Like, Jesus, I'll do better. When? In the next hour that you are going to spend on the cross? You can't do anything to make restitution for your sins. You can't make it better. You can't live a better life. It's over for you. There's no good way to make a meaningful 
exchange for bad for good in your life. You have nothing to offer. This guy has no bargaining chip with Jesus whatsoever. And in this moment, Jesus disturbs things and he introduces this awkward thing that his followers were so accustomed to, but they never dreamed he would take it to these extremes. Jesus does the unthinkable. He listened and he responded. 43, Jesus answered him. Here's a question for you. Does God hear the prayers of sinners? And the answer is yes, because those are the only kind of prayers there are. The only prayers there are are prayers from sinners. But why? Jesus is going to answer him. But Jesus answered him, and you just ask yourself, why? When every word comes at a price, when every word is so hard to get a breath to get the words out, why would Jesus answer? But he answered anyway. Do you know why he answered? Because grace always answers. That's what grace does. It always answers. It never gives up. It never runs out. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise, holiness with human hands, promised a man who had not done nothing good in his life, with nothing to offer, no promise, where I'm going, you're going. It was the last minute request of a desperate man. And Jesus is basically saying, look, you're going to have the same eternity that Stephen had, and Stephen was martyred for me. You're going to have the same eternity that the apostle Peter had. He lived his whole life for me. He started to help start the church. He, you know, he, he was instrumental in the early days of the church and just was this great person. See, this was a mystery to people like John and Peter and the other disciples. This would have been a mystery. Why are you offering grace to him? I mean, I get it. You want to offer grace to Matthew, the tax collector? Okay, it's weird. I don't, I don't get it completely, but okay. You want to offer grace to the woman caught in adultery? I get that. Okay, she's, you know, naked. She's in a compromised situation and, you know, a little empathy and you feel bad for. But this, Jesus, this is a whole nother thing. This guy is despicable. They didn't crucify good people. Unless it was Jesus. They crucified criminals. And here's what you got to understand. <clears throat> like life, grace is not fair. Grace just isn't fair. It's better than fair. It's disturbingly better than fair. After the resurrection, Jesus comes uh, to do this. He, he continues to um, offer grace to different people. I mean, you've got Peter who is there when Jesus gets crucified or when Jesus gets arrested and it says that when they arrested Jesus, they all scattered like cockroaches and Peter's like, I'm out. And then, and then in the courtyard, as they've got Jesus, you know, in custody, there's people in the courtyard that say, hey, weren't you with him? He's got three different opportunities to stand up and say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but that's not what he does. He denies Jesus three times. And so what does Jesus say to the man who denied him three times? Hey, Peter, I'm going to put you in charge of the whole thing. That's what he says to him. It makes no sense, but that's what Jesus does with grace. Paul, same way. Saul of Tarsus hated Christians, did everything he could to, to disrupt Christianity, and Jesus recruits him to the Jesus side, 
and turns his name into Paul, and Paul writes half of our New Testament. Jesus is saying over and over again, look, I'm a person who brings grace and truth in equal measure, not some kind of balance of, I bring both and I bring them full scale. The bottles of both of these are full. All grace, all truth, all the time, because that is what love is, and I am love personified. Now, here's the pushback. You're hearing this, and you're like, okay, grace is cool. I like grace. Grace is awesome. I get that. But really, Brett, was Jesus not concerned about consequences? No, here's, here's what I would tell you. Jesus knew better than anybody about justice and consequences. Here's what Jesus understood. Jesus understood that if we were to bear the full weight of the consequences of our sin, it would crush us. None of us could stand up under that. Jesus understood that. Because every single sin, whether you believe in sin or not, every single sin comes prepackaged with a gotcha. A gotcha. Every sin has a gotcha. So Jesus, in his grace and mercy at Christmas time, comes to get you. To say, no, it's not going to be like that. You're not going out like that. And this is why I don't know why everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. Look, if you have the opportunity to engage into a relationship with the Heavenly Father, creator of the world, to, be, to talk to him like a Heavenly Father that he has known for his grace and mercy that dropped down in the person of Jesus, why wouldn't everybody want that to be true? Jesus said this, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. He's not talking about John that we've been looking at. He's talking about John the Baptist. And, he, and the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, in other words, since I stepped foot on planet Earth, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. What's that mean? That means that, that it's happened historically. We are here today talking about this because of Jesus and because of what happened 2,000 years ago. When people got a glimpse of what was being offered, they leaned in, hoping, looking for evidence of the fact that this is an act of God in the course of human history. The good news is embodied in a person named Jesus. And the good news is our word, grace. And grace is an invitation much like the one that was extended to Matthew. Grace is the same thing extended to the woman caught in adultery, and grace is the exact same thing that is extended to the man on the cross. Jesus basically says, I know all about you. I know about the good. I know about the bad. I want you to follow me. But be warned, if you follow me, I'm going to call you away from bad behavior. I'm going to call you away from sin. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I haven't forgotten what you've done. It's better than that. I remember all of it, and I love you anyway. Now, come on. Follow me. That is the message of Christmas. And if you've never given your life to Christ, it's not about rule keeping. It's not about any of that. It's about humbly accepting a gift. It's about saying, you know what? I, I'm not good enough. On my own, I'm not good enough. I am a sinner. And I'm going to receive the grace of God. 
God, would you just let your grace fall? All it's the, it's the criminal on the cross. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I am a sinner. I deserve it. I haven't done this right. If that's a conversation you want to have, I would love to have that conversation with you. Do some praying about it. Do some thinking about it. For the rest of us, let's go through this season extending grace as well as we receive grace. Let's pray together. Father, Christmas is such a magical time. It's wonderful to watch little kids at Christmas time and, and this whole idea of gifts and presents. It all comes from the gift you gave us in Jesus. And, and the, Lord, the best gifts are the ones that when you first get them, you don't even realize how good they are. The gift of Jesus got better and better and better until he eventually goes to a cross and he pins our sins to a cross and forgives us forever. Wow. We're humbled. We're overwhelmed at the thought that our sin is, is removed, as you say in Scripture, as far as the east is from the west. And so, God, very humbly this morning, we just simply say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for a baby who would grow into a man and pin our sin to a tree. Father, we, we, we're just blessed beyond measure because you're our God, and we just recognize this morning there's nothing we do that isn't coming from your hand. There's nothing we have that hasn't been given to us by you. There's nothing we can do without you empowering us to do it. So, Lord, we just we, we give ourselves to you as we go into the world now. Help us to be good representatives of Jesus. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.